Are you tired of being told what to think and how to act? Well, you are not alone. In case you haven't realized it, you have an internal GPS. It knows all you need to know about how to live your life. So it's about time you stopped letting the media and the government tell you what is true for you. In fact, it is exactly that time. It's time to think for yourself. And here to make sure you're doing just that is your host, mediator, author, and lawyer, Carol Gold. Hi, it's Wednesday, July 20th. I'm Carol Gold, and welcome to Think for Yourself. Oftentimes in my podcasts, I make references to the wisdom that I think is available to us in biblical stories or in historical stories or even in mythology, common themes that run through various cultures. And I think we lose an opportunity when we don't pay attention to those things. But it can also be true that things happening contemporaneously with our own lives, but not happening to us, rather happening to someone else or happening someplace else, can also be instructive. Which is why in this podcast, I'm going to start off talking about Sri Lanka. If you don't know where Sri Lanka is or the name isn't even familiar to you, it's what used to be known as Ceylon, and its technical legal name today is the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka. It's actually in the Southern Asia area. It's an island that is an entire country. Sri Lanka, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it was being promoted by the World Economic Forum as a prototype for the brilliance and the potential success of modern monetary theory. However, ironically, or I'm sure much to the dismay of the World Economic Forum, Sri Lanka's economy has collapsed. After this week's collapse of the economy and national riots, during which the president, who I think his name is Gotabaya Rajapaksa, fled to the Maldives. He got out of town. He got off the island, so to, well, not so to speak. He got off the island. The World Economic Forum, simultaneously with the collapse and the rioting in Sri Lanka, deleted an article off of its website that had been published back in August of 2018. And it was published by the Sri Lanka Prime Minister, and it was titled, this is how I will make my country rich again by 2025. The uh, prime minister, his name is Wick Rumasinka. Don't hold me to the pronunciation. What he said in that article was that the country's economic policy, what they called Vision 2025, was firmly embedded in several principles, including, and let's pay attention to this, social market economy that delivers economic dividends to all, end quote. This plan for what they called an empowered Sri Lanka identified three priorities. One, raising incomes. Two, ensuring employment and housing for all. And three, improving the quality of life for its citizens. Follow that up with an article in the National Review from July 14th, just, what, a week ago, that was titled, Sri Lanka Collapses Under the Weight of Modern Monetary Theory. 
And here's a quote from the article. I'm going somewhere with all of this. I'm building towards something. So just bear with me. The quote from the National Review article is, as so often happens, clannishness, so I would say to you, read clan or listen to the word clannishness as the elites. Think of it as the elites. As so often happens, clannishness begat insularity. The Rajapaksa's government, that's the current prime minister, the Rajapaksa's government spent freely running large deficits and piling up government debt. The central bank of Sri Lanka became a great facilitator of that economic situation because in 2020, the then central bank's governor, whose name was W.D. Lakshman, said, quote, the fears around debt sustainability appear to be unfounded as the rupee, which is their, their currency, as rupee-dominated bonds were within the sovereign power, meaning of the government, money could be printed to repay them as indicated by ideas like modern monetary theory, end quote. So now I've kind of laid out the collapse of Sri Lanka, which was promoted as a visionary prototype for what the World Economic Forum, the global elites, the Davos crowd, the George Soroses, those who think they know better than we do how to live in the world. Modern monetary theory is the bedrock of everything they are trying to do. So what is modern monetary theory? Well, it's actually an alternative economic theory that says, in our case, the U.S. government can create more money. And it says the government can do that because the government is the issuer of money and it can create more since it's no longer backed by gold. This should all be sounding very familiar. I mean, QE1, QE2, QE3, this is what they were doing, quantitative easing, just printing or digitizing and digitizing and then digitizing more money, which has created not only our debt, but the inflation that we're now absolutely struggling with. The people who were advocates or proponents of modern monetary theory and who still are think that it can solve lots of economic problems. Those people who are opposed to modern monetary theory fear inflation and they fear increased deficits, which is exactly what we have, right? Does that sound familiar? The very things that have happened to Sri Lanka, the very thing that opponents of modern monetary theory fear are the very things that have happened not only to Sri Lanka, but are happening to us. So we better look at Sri Lanka as a modern day cautionary tale about what can happen if the global elites get to continue to impose upon us and the world modern monetary theory. In addition to that, as if that weren't enough to handle or to wrap our brains around, President Biden has indicated in the last week that he's considering an emergency order for climate and I'm sorry, at, yes, an emergency executive order, I should have said, an emergency executive order for climate and potentially one for health. And I assume the one for health is tied to their next wishful coming pandemic, or perhaps it's the monkeypox scare that we're now beginning to see rear its ugly head. 
what will an emergency executive powers do for the president? Well, it will give him virtually unlimited power to regulate the oil and gas industries. Because remember, he can't seem to get done what he wants to get done in his new Green Deal. But executive emergency powers will get it done for him. Because while that won't quite be nationalizing the oil and gas industries, as they did in Venezuela, but it will effectively be the same thing because under emergency powers, the president will be able to tell the oil and gas industries, and by the way, anybody else doing commerce in the country, what they can and cannot do. And if you think that's not dangerous, you have to move then to Venezuela with your mind's eye and look at what happened there, because that's what happened in Venezuela. They nationalized the, the oil industry, oil and gas. They, they took over businesses, and Venezuela went from being one of the most economically sound and prosperous countries in all of Central and South America, but it became what it is today, which is a bankrupt, desperate nation where people ate zoo animals to survive. As awful as that sounds, thank you. What happens when government tries to act like it's the private sector? So all of this, whether we go back to executive orders and attempts to control commerce as opposed to allowing the free market and capitalism to do it, or whether we look at the experts in COVID, or we look at the experts at the World Economic Forum and the elites at Davos, wherever we look at these experts, what we find is that they exist by nature of our abdicating our own personal responsibility. And I talk about this all the time because I think it's a huge issue. You know, we talk about first responders, right? There's an emergency, something happens, you, you want the first responders to show up. But do you realize that prior to Jimmy Carter's presidency, there was no concept of first responders that were organized and that showed up whenever there was an, an accident, a tragedy, whatever. We Americans were our own first responders. We showed up locally wherever something happened. It was the local people who immediately responded. We are our own first responders to everything that happens to us in our lives and in our communities. And when we gave that up, it was the beginning of giving up, I think, a lot of other powers that are ours and would otherwise remain ours, but for the fact that we abdicate personal responsibility. Every time we kid ourselves that someone else will take care of it or fix it or make it better or solve the problem, we relinquish just a little more each time and we abdicate another aspect of personal responsibility. And when you relinquish enough of your personal responsibility, you become a slave. There's a whole lot of history around that one. And I think in many ways, our feelings of impotence around so much of what is going on around us comes from the fact that to some degree we've become enslaved to the technology, to the overreach of government, to the desperation of just trying to keep up financially, emotionally, psychologically. We are, to a great extent, enslaved to our external environment. There's a contemporary example 
of how to deal with this expert slash elite group of people who think they know more than us and have a right to rule over us, over our culture, over our nation, and over our lives. And that example are the parents across this country who have showed up at those school board meetings and said, not on my watch, these are my children, and you've crossed the boundary. Those parents were very brave. They have gotten the job done in many of those school districts in many of those states because they didn't allow themselves to be shouted down. They didn't allow themselves to be banned or barred from those meetings. And some of them even were arrested, but they didn't care because they knew the time had come to stand because it was people messing with their children and you don't mess with somebody's children without feeling the wrath of that parental protection come down upon you. I think there should be an example in that for all of us. And I will say admittedly, it takes courage to do things like that. It takes courage to stand and be heard. It takes courage to be bold enough to voice where you are on any given issue. If it seems like you're surrounded by people or disempowered by people who have the illusion of power over you. I've spoken before about a sculpture, a piece of art that's in my office. Engraved in it is the quote, I am not afraid. I was made for this. And the quote is from Joan of Arc. In my book, The Questions God Will Ask, Prepping for the Final Exam, I talk about 12 principles that are key to living a life that is you, manifested at your highest possible frequency of what you can do and create in this lifetime. For every one of those principles, because for me, everything's about energy and the rightful use of energy, and the words or the names that I give principles in the book are really just different frequencies of energy flowing. So one of the principles is courage. And I want to look at it for a moment because for each one of those principles, after I define it and I give real life examples of what the principles are, I define the principle by breaking it down into three parts. And for each one of those parts, I pose a question that you can ask yourself on a daily basis or a weekly basis or whenever you're in trouble, so to speak, or you're in doubt about that principle that will help you get back on the right track to operating at what I consider to be your highest frequency. So I'm going to read you the three questions that have to do with courage. The first is, Have I been courageous enough to ask the questions that need to be asked when I feel integrity lacking in myself, my situation, or anyone else? The second question is, have I become comfortable with stagnation? And if so, what action can I take now to jumpstart new growth? And the third question is, am I clinging to ideas, people, or things because I lack trust in a loving creator greater than myself that will guide and sustain me. I think that if you ask yourself those questions and you come up short on your answers, you can use those questions as a barometer, as a guide to help you become more confident and courageous in your own everyday life. Because each of us is going to have to be 
in some way in our own lives, in our own circumstances, like those parents who stood up against those corrupt and elitist and arrogant school board members. I want to leave you with two quotes. One is from Jim Hightower. Hightower is a syndicated columnist and a political activist and an author. And from 1983 to 1991, he served as the elected commissioner of the Texas Department of Agriculture. Here's the quote. The opposite of courage is not cowardice, it's conformity. Even a dead fish can go with the flow. And the second quote is from a woman named Paulina, whose name I only know by her first name. She is a Polish woman who helped hide and feed Jews during the Holocaust, almost within striking distance of one of the concentration camps. And when she was asked not too long ago, how did the righteous, meaning those who helped the Jews and fed the Jews and hid the Jews, how did the righteous become righteous? She replied, oh, we didn't become righteous. We simply refused to go off the cliff with everyone else. It's 2022, everyone, and we're all standing on a cliff. Will you access courage or will you go off the cliff with the others? Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Gold. I'll be back here again on Friday. And until I am, please think for yourself. Carol thanks you for spending your valuable time with her. It is her mission to empower you to remember how smart and capable you are. Be sure to check out Carol's website, carolgold.com. That's Carol with an E, gold.com. Please leave a review and subscribe here so you'll be alerted to Carol's next podcast. Until then, above all else, remember, it's time to think for yourself.